back in John 1. We're going to read from uh, verse 15 to 18, although I'm going to focus on 16 to 18. We'll get back to 15 next week. Uh, You might understand why as we kind of read this. Okay. Verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the word may fall on good soil this morning. May your spirit so work among us that none would be stolen by the thief of all good things. We ask that none of it may be choked out by the things of this world, but instead would bear much fruit as our faith grows. And so we ask that you would make those who know you more mature in Christ. We ask that those who don't know you may come to faith in this great Jesus that we proclaim even this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who weren't aware, today is a big day. Today is an important day because it's Brady versus Manning number 15. Okay? And I'm not really sure why he's wearing Bracco orange over there. But, uh, <clears throat> but this is one of the great debates of our time for those who care about sports. Because people like great debates of their time. Who's better, Brady or Manning? Is it the individual success of Peyton Manning or is it the team dominance that has been led by Tom Brady? It's not the only question that comes up. There are lots of these kinds of questions that arise. Ted Williams? Joe DiMaggio, who was the greater hitter? The man who was the last man to hit 400 in a season or the man who had the 56-game hitting streak that very same season? Which is the greater hitter? It's not just that. Russell Chamberlain, NBA, who was the greatest player who ever lived? Well, okay, before the era of Jordan and uh, <laughs> LeBron. I don't want to talk about those two guys, though. And it's not just sports. You know, in my day, you know, when I was younger, it was, who's the better guitarist? Richie Blackmore? Jimmy Page? Best band? Purple? Led Zeppelin? I'm amazed because there are, there are actually online debates of who's better, Slash from Guns N' Roses or Buckethead? Okay? You just never know. And this is an interesting time because it's not just the time for the NFL playoffs, but it's also award season time. Because now we, this, this, the shows have already begun. You know, who's the best picture? What's the best picture? Who's the best actor? Who's the best actress? All of these awards. And so I want you to kind of keep that in mind a little bit, that award season as we kind of work through this passage a little bit. Because that who is greater question is the one that sort of drives this text. And what we're going to see is that the answer is always Jesus. He's always greater. 
There is no one who, greater than him or who offers more to sinners than Jesus Christ. So first, let's start with this idea that Jesus is greater because his fullness overflows to us. Kind of an odd concept when we think about it. His fullness is able to overflow to us. Verse 15 is sort of an odd thing. You'll notice that it's in parentheses because it sort of stands out from the, the text a little bit. And you're kind of, you know, if you're me, you're kind of, well, why in the world is John, the apostle, putting in this statement, this parenthetical statement about Jesus here when he's about to have about this whole section on the testimony of John the baptizer about Jesus? Why is this here? And that is a very good question to ask. Because he's, he's going to set something up. He's setting up yet another way to explain the fact that Jesus is greater than John the baptizer. And the key for why this is here is found in the very next verse, the very first word that we find in the text in verse 16, that word for. Because that word for is one of those words that kind of communicates the reason for, because of this reason. And there has to be something that the there the four is there for, okay? There's got to be some sort of um, thing that is prompting this question of of why does this matter? Let us say before we go too much further that John the Baptizer was a great man. Jesus himself in Matthew 11, says this about him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one, no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so he's, gonna, he's making a comparison there, but let's not lose sight of this thing. That up to that point in time, there was no one who was born, with the exception of Jesus, who was greater than John the Baptist. And so to say that Jesus is greater is not to say that John the Baptist or baptizer is an insignificant person, that he is one of low or no account. He was well esteemed in the eyes of Jesus. We'll see what his testimony means next week, but let's cling to this this idea that, that Jesus is greater. Okay? Now, Jesus is greater because. And the first reason Jesus is greater is that it is from his fullness. Okay? Here's the cause. Jesus' fullness as the word of God who was with God and was himself God. Okay? Remember that, that, um, John 1, 1 and 1, 2 teach this idea that the word was with God, that he's distinct from God in a sense, but also that he is God. So we see the distinction between the persons in the Trinity as well as a unity within the Trinity. That's why it's tri-unity, okay? That whole thing. And it's because he is fully God that there is a fullness to him that is not present in John the Baptist, who is a mere man, however great he may be. There is not a fullness to him that is able to overflow to anybody else. This is going to become important. So this fullness, which is similar to what we find in Colossians, 
when we were there uh, for a year. <clears throat> Makes no sense if Jesus isn't fully God. But instead we see that he is the overflowing fountain of life that we need. As it says in Psalm 36, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This fountain of life, this fountain of fullness that overflows its banks to enrich others. This is part of what John wants us to understand about the greatness of Jesus. It is from this fullness, John says, that we have all received something. Which leads us to ask, what does he mean, we have all? Is he referring to every man, woman, and child in his day and every day thereafter? Or does he mean something else? And I believe he's hearkening back to verse 12. Because remember, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. But in verse 12, John declares that... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so he's referring to those same people, those who had believed in him, who had received him. They received not just this right to be children of God, but they received something else in addition to that, something that arises from his fullness as God. Martin Luther, one of my favorite quotes by Luther, a Christian soul has all that Christ has, for faith brings us at once all the blessings of Christ. And so John is sort of alluding to this idea, there's, there's more that comes. And the thing that he says first off is grace upon grace. Now, I'm not sure that's the best translation of that. Perhaps a better translation of that is grace after grace. Let's think for a moment of, of what it is that John is communicating here. One way that we can understand this, and it's more the grace upon grace idea, is that you know we've received the grace of adopt of justification. In addition to the grace of justification, the grace of adoption, the grace of sanctification, the grace of perseverance. And so there's not just one grace that Jesus gives us, but there's grace upon grace upon grace to sustain us through the totality of our Christian lives. And that is a true statement, but I'm not sure that's what John is getting at. Because there's a word that begins the very next sentence, and it's the same word that began this sentence. For. Once again, for this reason, or because of this, and he talks about Moses and the law. And so probably a better way to understand this phrase, grace after grace, is that there was a grace that came through the giving of the old covenant. There was a grace that was found in the law, but now a greater grace is coming. But both of them found their root in Jesus Christ. It's not as though Jesus is somehow separate from the administration of the covenant under the Mosaic covenant. 
The grace of the gospel, in other words, comes after the grace of the law, which is intended to lead people to Christ. The law reflects Christ's character to us, that we might come to know him more greatly. But also, in addition to that, it's not just the moral law, but we see the ceremonial law comes, which makes temporary, but real, because it's rooted in Christ, temporary provision for the sin of the people. And so there was a place for forgiveness that was found in the law, that was to be made use of by people who trusted in God and his promises. And that would only last until the coming of Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross, but it was meant to be a provisionary measure for them, to sustain them until that time, that they might know that there is forgiveness with God. Indeed, as Moses was, as God declared to Moses, you know, when he was on the cleft of the rock, forgiving, slow to anger, quick to forgive, has, that is revealed in the fact of the sacrifices that were, the people of God were able to make to find this provision for forgiveness of their sin. And so we must not think that the law is only to convict, but the law also made a provision in the Old Testament for forgiveness. So it did not only condemn, but also offered forgiveness through the ceremonial law. And so we see that Jesus is, in a sense, a never-ending, never-exhausting fountain of grace to those who live in fellowship with God by faith in Him. And so Jesus is greater because he does not hoard his fullness. He does not keep his fullness to himself, but he gives it freely to those who believe in him. Secondly, let's see this. Jesus is greater because he is the source of grace and truth. Jesus wants us to, uh, sorry, John wants us to know, and Jesus does too, but John, the author of this gospel, wants us to know that not only is Jesus greater than John the baptizer, as well as John the Apostle, but that Jesus is even greater than Moses. Now, if you were to walk up and ask any of the Pharisees, okay, that were around in the days of day of Jesus, who was the greatest Israelite? They wouldn't say John the Baptizer. They would probably say either Abraham or Moses. They put Moses on a pretty high pedestal. Okay, And that is understandable when you think of how God used Moses in the life of Israel. Can you think of any greater person than one who leads an entire nation of over a million and a half people out of slavery? He's a significant, important, vital part of the history of the people of Israel. And yet... Though the, the, and we're going to see this running all the way through the rest of this gospel of, of John's. Though they keep exalting Moses, Jesus will keep saying that I am greater than he. For what we see here is again the four, the reason again, because the law was given through Moses. Moses was their mediator. He was, as I mentioned, the one who led them out of Egypt. But we notice this. The law did not originate with Moses. He didn't come up with the law. 
The law was given through him. That's that idea of a mediator. It's not his, but it, it is granted to the people through the ministry of Moses. And I think that is a very significant thing that we're about to see here. <clears throat> but Moses, as this great figure, looked forward to the time of another great figure. In Deuteronomy 18, we see Moses saying this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is, it is to him you shall listen. So Moses is saying, there's another person who's going to come with the same kind of authority that I'm, I have, and you have to listen to him. And what happened is most of the Jews didn't listen to him. They continued to listen only to Moses. John says about him, okay, the law was given through Moses, parallel phrase, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a similarity here in that through, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, okay? So there's a similarity that's there, but there's also this great difference, okay? The, well, I should, I misspoke. The law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through, or came into existence through, Jesus Christ. That's the difference. They're both sort of mediators, but the law was never Moses's. It never came or didn't arise from Moses. But Jesus is the author of grace and truth. The, word, the verb that is used here is the same verb that is used up in verse 3. All things were made through him or came into being through him. And through him there was not made anything that was made or came into being. It's the same word, same context, same idea. All of, just as all of creation finds its source in Jesus Christ, all grace and truth find their source in Jesus Christ. So not only is that there the idea that if you're not in Christ, you have no grace, but if you obliterate Christ from history and reality, there is no grace. There is no truth. What are these things that come from His fullness? First, grace. That idea of unmerited favor with God. Now, when... Marty was reading from Exodus 33. There, there was that phrase that came up a couple of times. If I find favor with you, you have found favor in my eyes. That idea of, of favor, that you are looked upon favorably. Grace is that idea of receiving blessings from someone, blessings you don't, re, don't deserve. That's the idea of unmerited favor. But not only that, we see, we recognize that we're not just neutral. It's not like we're, we're neutral, but we haven't earned these blessings, but also we've got demerits. You know, we've done bad things. So we don't deserve this favor in any way, shape, or form. And yet it comes despite the fact that we don't deserve it. That's the idea of grace. Okay? Our kids, did they, did, they, did they work to earn the clothes that are on their backs? My kids didn't. Okay, although, though Jaden now has an allowance, so, you know. 
But most of what they receive as our children, young children, they do not deserve in the sense of they haven't done anything to earn or gain them. We freely give these things to our children. They are, in a sense, gracious acts or gifts to our children. They receive our favor. And sometimes they really don't deserve it. <laughs> but we're not going to go there today. Okay? Not only that, but we see that it's, he comes and gives us grace, but also truth. This idea of conforming with, or, to fact or reality. Okay? It's, it's about describing what actually is. It's an objective sort of thing. Not just, you know, well, that's your truth and this is my truth, as sometimes gets said these days, but there's an objective reality to things. Okay? Two plus two really is four. It's not four for me and eight for you. Okay? Truth. So that we can keep we can speak consistently to one another and understand one another. If there's no truth between, behind our words, then we really can't communicate. A husband and a wife would be at a loss for words. They'd always be completely confused more than they are by the usual wall of incomprehensibility that Kathy Keller talks about. It'd be even worse. Okay, if there's no truth behind the meaning of words. But here we see... That truth conforms to this objective reality. And remember that Jesus made it all. Verse 3. So who's qualified to speak most accurately and truthfully about creation? About the nature of, of, of existence? Jesus? Not Plato. He might have a few insights, but you know what? Jesus has a few more. Whatever area you want, Jesus understands better because he has made it, he has formed it, he has put it all together. It's, it exists, as we saw in Colossians, for him, not just by him, but also for him. And so we see this in, in uh, John 14. Jesus said to him, who was Philip, I think, I am the way... And the truth. Not only did he speak the truth, but he claims to be the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here's this little phrase we're going to get to in a little bit. If you had known me, you would also, you would know my Father also. We'll get back to that one. But here's good news. Jesus brings grace and truth to those who believe in him because that's exactly what they need because unfortunately they are filled with lies with weakness with sin we've talked about this already in the, in the context of the darkness that, that uh, John mentions earlier in this passage and we're going to see that darkness again but you know there's an aspect to that of exchanging the truth as it says in Romans 1 for a lie Okay, and when you've exchanged the truth for a lie, what happens is you exchange biblical morality for unbiblical morality. Meaning, now you think sin is good as opposed to evil. And not only that, but because of Adam's great decision and uh, fall into sin, 
there's also weakness that we partake of. Not just the fact that we're finite human beings, but now weakness has been introduced into us. We find that there are things such as birth defects. There are things such as diseases and illnesses. Weakness. Proclivities towards particular sins. All of this has been brought. And so it's good news that Jesus brings us grace and truth because we desperately need these things. As John Calvin notes in his commentary on this section, that we are all utterly destitute and empty of spiritual blessings. For the abundance, abundance which exists in Christ is intended to supply our deficiency. Don't you love that? To supply our deficiency. To relieve our poverty. To satisfy our hunger and thirst. So Calvin notes our emptiness. But he says Christ comes to fill that. D.A. Carson puts it this way. One of my pastor friends put this on his Facebook this morning. said, too bad he couldn't use it. And I said, I can. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an, econ- sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a Savior. And so Jesus is greater than Moses, because he provides what we need most, grace and truth. Third, Jesus is greater because he truly reveals the Father. John continues to explain why Jesus is so much greater than Moses or any other religious leader you can think of. You can toss in there Confucius, the Buddha, Joseph Smith, Whomever you want. Joseph Campbell, that guy on PBS who does all that mythology stuff. Him, there I am in there. All of these people. Doesn't matter. Okay? He's greater than all of them. All these people that purport to point toward God precisely because he is God. No one, according to what John says here, which is an echo of what we saw in Exodus 33, No one has ever seen God. Not even Moses. One of the greatest figures in Israel's history. He wanted to see God's glory, and God said, You cannot see my face and live. It is impossible for you, Moses, because guess what? You're still a sinner, Moses. As much as you have found favor in my eyes, and you have, you cannot see my face and live. So there was a place that Moses could never go. No one has seen him. Except the only God. Which I think is not a very good 
translation. Because we have the noun God, but we also have that same noun that we found in verse 14 that we translate the only begotten or the unique, meaning the Son. And so he's, he's specifically saying that, that God, the only begotten, or God the Son, he's making sure that we understand that this only begotten is fully divine. Okay? They're, they're, the way this is written is, is just profound in that particular sense. Nothing else about this passage makes sense if this is not true. That if the, if the only begotten is not God himself, then this is not true. It does not make sense. And so we see here, just as we see in Hebrews, that, Jesus, that Moses was great by being a faithful servant, but that Jesus was greater because he was a faithful son. Hebrews 1. Verse 1 talks about how God had spoken in various ways, and to one of those people he spoke was Moses. But in verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. None of that could be said of Moses, Confucius, Buddha, anyone. He said of only one person, Jesus, the Messiah. Later in, in chapter 2, in verse... Uh, Three. Yeah. Am I sure that's chapter two? I'm double checking that because for some reason I thought it was not. I want to make sure I give you the right citation. See, my own deficiency and weakness on display. Indeed, that's chapter three, not chapter two. Verse three. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, in verse 5, he says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The greatness of a son over a servant. That's part of the idea of, of additionally how Jesus is greater than this Moses that many of the Pharisees were trying to cling to. He further identifies this only begotten God as the one who is at the Father's side. That's how we know he's speaking of the Son. Or, as we've said before, it can mean in his bosom or in his lap. Augustine and Calvin say that this points to the fact that the Son was in the confidence of the Father, meaning they, they, they counseled with one another. And that's true, but I don't think that's really what this is getting at. I believe this is, a, again, a picture of incredible intimacy. There's only a few people in this world who get on my lap. And those are the people with whom I have the most intimate relationship. My family. Generally speaking, no one else gets in my lap. If any of you adults try to climb into my lap later on today, I'm going to say, no, you don't belong there. And I shouldn't be climbing into your lap. But my children belong there. My wife belongs there. Because they're in my bosom. They're in my heart. They are the greatest earthly treasure that I have. And so this is a sign of intimacy and affection between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. And he, he 
as because he's in his father's lap, he knows his father perfectly. I would say he can't know his weaknesses because unlike me, he has none. And so my children, unfortunately, know my weaknesses all too well. But Jesus knew the perfections of his father. The greatness of his father. He knew the utter and complete depths. There are things that I hide from my children about me that I don't want them to know about me because they're so horrible. There's nothing like that in the father. Jesus knows him perfectly to the deepest part of who he is. This is good news. But not only does he know that, but it says, he has made him known. He did not keep this knowledge of the Father to himself, but he has declared it. The Greek word is that one we get, that fancy, you know, Bible, uh, pastor talk word, exegesis. Jesus exegeted the Father. He interpreted, he declared, he made known who the Father is. That is why, as we mentioned in John 14, Jesus can say, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, because we're the same. We have the same heart. I am his perfect image. To see me and what I do is to see him precisely because, as John will say, I only do what he tells me to do. Such was his submission to his father. And so he, he perfectly reveals the father to us, not just what he sees, but also in terms of who Jesus is, is a perfect revelation of the father. We see this as well in John 6. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying, I'm the one sent by God. I have seen the Father. I'm gonna, I can tell you about the Father. I can tell you the truth about the Father. Not glimpses of the truth, but the whole truth of the Father. As well in, in 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? There's a, there's a hint of disappointment in Jesus' words here. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see him is to see the Father. It's not like Jesus has a personality and the Father has a very different personality. They are like, alike in this fashion. They're united in purpose. And all of these things, as we shall see as we go through this. Do you know this Jesus? This Jesus whose fullness overflows? This Jesus who is the source of grace and truth? 
this Jesus, who is the only begotten, who makes the Father known, do you know that Jesus? Because any other Jesus is a pretender and a fake. This is the Jesus we must know. This is the Jesus we must love. This is the Jesus we must serve because there is no other. All right. Remember I mentioned those. it's award season time? At the end of, of time, all of these subjective arguments about who's better, what movie's better, what athlete's better, all of those things will not matter. They may have occupied our time now, but they will not occupy our time then. There is going to be a very different kind of award ceremony. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Because we see there that everyone will bow the knee and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And so we see that all who rely upon their own goodness are going to receive an award that is suitable for relying on their own goodness. Judgment. That's what the goats got in Matthew 25. Judgment because the wages of sin is death. Because we have no goodness. Or at least we don't have enough goodness. All those who rely rather on Christ by faith will receive grace upon grace. Not as a reward, but as an, a, an award. Jesus' reward, okay, we get awards, he gets rewards, will be all those trophies of grace that he purchased with his death on the cross. So he gets a lot of good stuff in addition to praise. A people that are his own, eager to do good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we read in Hebrews earlier today, that the word of God is living and active. And so I ask that it would, it would indeed pierce us to our innermost being in the ways that we need to be pierced. That to the, those who, who are overcome with guilt, that they would, they would know of the grace of Jesus Christ. That there are those who struggle with, with what is true, what, uh, you know, those kinds of questions, what, what, what is lies and what are truths that that word of God would pierce them to the very core of their being so that they would know the truth. My Father, I ask that you would help all of us to look to Christ, our great high priest, who as Hebrews 4 declares, sits upon a throne of grace that we might boldly come in his name, that we might receive the mercy and grace we have in our times of need. In our times of need, Father, as a congregation, in our times of need as families, in our times of need as individuals, may we seek Jesus because he is the only one through whom these things come to us. It is in his name we pray. Amen.